close call with death. These are the stories of those who've cheated death and are here to tell their story. My name is Bob Howard, and I've had many close calls with death. But hey, who's counting? Welcome to the show. Today, I have as my guest, Andrea Duncan, who is a recipient of a new heart as of a few years ago. And we're going to talk with her about that experience and her close calls with death. So, Andrea, thank you so much for being here tonight and uh, being able to spend some time with me talking about your experience with your new heart. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. Um, tell us, you know what, just to, for the listeners, I want them to get a really good feel for you. And so I want them to kind of know who I'm talking to right off the bat. So tell me just a little bit about you, you know, who you are, where you live. I I am Andrea Duncan and I am a 47 year old mother to two children, uh, one, two daughters, a 23 year old and a six year old. And I live in Saratoga Springs, Utah. And in my free time, I love to read and crochet and garden and uh, just about just about anything like that. I enjoy. Nice, nice. Well, I really appreciate you being here, and <clears throat> I'm really looking forward to hearing, you know, what led up to um, this experience with your new heart and and everything. So, first of all, what led up to you needing uh, a new heart? What was wrong with the old one? Um, when I, when I, uh, my husband and I had been fighting infertility issues for about 11 years and, um, out of the blue, we found out that I was pregnant and we were incredibly excited. It was a huge point in our life. And, um, we continued on with the pregnancy and, uh, I started having a few problems in the last trimester but nothing that would be really unusual that's due to pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of things that could have been uh, caught early and maybe prevented some future events happening weren't caught. Um, But anyway, I had my daughter on May 20th, and she uh, was born healthy. I had a cesarean section, and eight days later... I suffered a massive heart attack and oh had a gosh. mini stroke. And you you didn't see any of this coming. None you of it coming. You thought everything you were just fine, healthy going into this. I no history of heart n- issues. None. In fact, I've been extremely healthy my whole life. I was a runner um, prior to this. I eat fairly well. Um, I was in perfect shape. I went to the doctor only for my yearly physicals, and that was about it. And so when this happened, it was. It just, it, uh, devastating, very devastating. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. Um, that moment when you had this massive heart attack and everything in the, in the stroke, where was that? Where did that take place? And, and who came to your rescue? It took, what happened is on May 28th, um, my sister had come up from St. George to stay with me, um, because my husband had to go back to work and, and she came with me, and the next morning we got up because we had to take the baby to the pediatrician and for a checkup. And so we got up, got dressed, and went to the doctor, and she had a clean bill of health. And afterward, we thought, my sister and my daughter and I thought, well, let's go 
my 23 year old daughter, we -hmm. thought, let's go grab some lunch. So, um, we went and grabbed lunch. It was a beautiful sunny day. I remember thinking, I'm so grateful. I'm so lucky. I have everything that I need and want in my life. And then after we got done with lunch, we headed back to my home and I fed the baby and I was tired. I was, um, but not more than what you would think after eight days having a baby. Right. And so I thought, still well, in recovery. Right. And so I told my sister and daughter, I said, I'm going to go feed the baby and then lay down for a little bit with her. And they said, okay. And fell asleep. And at around 3.30 that afternoon, just about a couple hours after I'd fallen asleep, I woke up and sat straight up in bed. And I was having a hard time breathing. I um, was dizzy. And I immediately knew that I needed help and that I needed to signal my sister. And even though it was difficult to get out of bed and walk, I was able to walk to the staircase and holler as quickly, as loudly as I could, which was not much, down to my sister and make it back into bed. And she comes running up because she could hear the distress. And I'm sitting on the side of the bed and I start to sweat profusely and I am so dizzy and I'm barely Mm -hmm. catching my breath. And then my chest starts to just hurt and the pressure was enormous. And that's when my sister dialed 911. She didn't. What did you think was going on with you at that time? You know, honestly, what I thought is I thought I'd, you know, I'd had a C-section eight days prior and I thought, oh, I probably got a blood clot and you know they're going right. to go in and fix it and I'll be home tonight. Yeah. I honestly didn't think anything other than that. Um and the paramedics got there in three and a half minutes from the phone call. The timing of everything that happened that day was so crucial and miraculous in many ways. Um they got there in three and a half minutes. They I remember them. I couldn't speak at this point. I was really, I was in shock. And so they're shoving aspirin down my throat. And one paramedic is getting information from my daughter who was holding the baby at the time. And my sister is helping out. And next thing I know, they have me on a gurney and they're, I'm in the ambulance and I'm on the way to the ambulance. And I mean, sorry, to the hospital, we get to the ER and they rushed me back there into the trauma room and they're hooking me up. They hooked me up to an EKG. And at this point, there are probably a dozen people working furiously around me. And I remember, I remember this is the time when I start to, started to feel a lot of fear. I instinctively knew that this was very bad. This is serious. This is serious. Mm-hmm. And I think I might die. And, um, this was truly your close call with death. This right really, here. this really was. Yeah. And I started, I started begging for my life. Mm-hmm. I, I just started saying, please save me. Please save my life. I've got a brand new baby. I need to be here. And I remember just begging and they were saying, we are doing everything we can. And then, um, the doctor, uh, reads the EKG and he touched my shoulder. He said, you're having a heart attack. And then he looked at my husband, pointed to him and said, keep up. And they grabbed my bed and they literally ran down to surgery. 
because they needed to, um, they were in surgery for about five hours, putting stints in, basically literally trying to save my life. And um, they ended up having to put me on ECMO. And um, that is the most, that is the heaviest form of life support you can be on. Mm. It literally does the work of your heart and lungs. You don't even need a heart in your chest for that machine to work. Oh, so this is a machine. It's not a drug that they No, you. it's they, a machine. So, so talk about that. What, what kind of machine is that? Um, I don't exactly remember what, it, what ECMO stands for. It's E-C-M-O. And... Um, but it's the, it's the most aggressive form of life support. And what they do is they put these two cannules into your female arteries. And so, um, and you can't move from then on out. And of course, and I'm under, I, I don't know Thank what's goodness going on. You weren't always yes. to see this. Right. I coded twice on the table and they did CPR for an hour. And I'm so grateful for that. Because I just think an hour, I mean, after 45 minutes, it it is a long time doing that. And most people don't come back from being, um, you know, cardiac that far along. They don't. Mm -hmm. And so for them to keep going and not giving up, I have gratitude for that. And I've thanked them since then for keeping I was going. just going to ask you, so were you able to go back and see this team that um, worked on you and saved your life? Yes, I have. In fact, um, I was I went back and saw the, all those who helped me in the ER. The actual cardiologist that was on call um, that literally saved my life there in the hospital, I met him about four or five months, no, four or five months after heart transplant. And he told my team and my family, I don't think she's going to make it through the night. And um, he fully expected me to pass that night. And um, when they, they ended up, Utah Valley Hospital didn't have all of the care that I needed. I needed some heavy-duty care. And so they um, shipped me up here to Intermountain Medical Center, where they have a world-renowned heart and lung clinic. Mm-hmm. And and they could care for me. That's also a transplant center. And so if anyone was going to be able to help me, it would be them. Um So that that just totally tells us where your heart was going and, and, and that you were now on like a life support. I was system, on full life support. This at this ECMO. Right. I and was, mm-hmm. so family has to be freaking out at this point, wondering what in the world are, are we going to lose her? And yes. and you have a brand new baby there that your daughter's taking care of. Yes. I mean, it, it was, it was just all hands on deck emergency for your family. Absolutely. In fact, my family and everybody that was in the emergency room, when he came out, he said, he said that he's never come out to a bigger group of people to, to talk to. And when he came out, my, my husband at the time said he looked like he'd been through a war zone and he'd worked so aggressively for so many hours. And he looked at my family and said, I can't do any more for her. And uh, I don't think she's going to make it. Andrea, what happened at that point when somebody came forth and, my- um, and, and offered to do something for you and your doctor 
was impressed and relieved. What was that? My father stepped forward and he asked if he could give me a blessing, a blessing of healing. And um, the doctor looked at my father and said, I was hoping you would say that because she needs more than I can give her. And they got me prepped and they let my dad and my husband and my mother back and they walked in. And saw you. Yes, there were a dozen. They said that there were a dozen people furiously working around me, mm-hmm. just keeping me alive. And um, and I think that's at the time when they realized the severity of my situation. And that's also when I realized the severity of my situation. Because up to this point, I was under, I was not conscious. And when my dad came over to give me a blessing, I woke up. And I looked at him, and all I could do was have to, all I had was tears running down my eyes, out of my eyes, because I knew what he was going to do. I knew he was going to give me a blessing. And I was scared. I was so scared. I bet you were. And I knew, I instinctively knew that I was dying. And all I wanted was some peace and comfort at that time. And so my dad did. He gave, So not necessarily a, a blessing of health to survive this, but a a blessing of comfort to be able to move on and and feel okay with that. Very much so. Yeah. It wasn't so much yeah, of healing. It was just to help me to have the strength to move forward, to move on, whatever that may be, however that may be. And I remember during this blessing, I remember just having this flood of peace come over me and it, I didn't know how this was going to turn out, this situation. I didn't know how hard I was going to have to work. I didn't know if I was even going to pass. But I just had this feeling of peace that all was going to be well one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And that is what I needed at that moment. Absolutely. That's what I needed to be able to uh, go through what, what was to come. So take us to that point. Um, at, at, you were on this life support. They did everything they could around you. What happened in the next few weeks uh, to you? You obviously survived, or else you wouldn't be here talking to me today, right? What what ha- what? Tell us about that transition. What happened after that? Um, after they put me in an induced coma when I got up to Salt Lake City, um, because they wanted to rest my heart and see if it could recover on its own. They didn't think it would because the damage was so extensive because they were doing testing every day. And your heart is still in your body. At this my heart point. is still in my body, but on, um, day five of hospitalization, it was June 5th. They went in, they, well, they had talked to my family, but they basically said, that my heart was not going to recover on its own, that the only thing that was going to save my life at this point was to have a heart transplant. But my heart, even at that point, was not beating. I was on full life support, and that's what ECMO was doing for Mm -hmm. me. And they said, in order to get her healthy enough for transplant, we need to put a device called a LVAD, left ventricular assist device in her. And what they do is they take this, this little machine, which is a miracle in and of itself. And they go and they sew it to the bottom of your heart. And they, there's a hose that hooks up to the top of the aorta. And then they 
have a drive line that comes out of your stomach. A drive line meaning a, a big pick a, line. A, a big... pick line, yes. And it's and then they we have to keep that very clean. That's an issue all of itself. But then that is hooked to a computer that I have to have on me that's tethered to me at all times, 24 hours, 24-7. And, um, you know, you have to maintain it. There's numbers. There's things that go on with that. But that was the only thing that was going to keep me alive while I waited for a new heart. Okay. So how long does it normally take to get to when you, once you're on a, um, heart transplant list and, and, um, how, what's a normal time frame of waiting in that condition to get a new heart? Well, in it, in the condition that I was in, because I was so severe, you go to the top of the list fairly quickly. Um, because my case was so emergent and my heart attack was just uh, huge. And so we go to the list. So it's a little bit quicker, but still, even in my state, um, people wait two, three, up to five years, sometimes six years to get, yeah, to see, get a that's, new heart. That's what the listeners need to understand is this, this is a long, long path and, and it can take years, years. To, to get this heart. Yes. In fact, in certain parts of the country, uh, it can take up to 10 years. My gosh. Andrea, what goes through your mind when you know that you have such a long, a long drawn out recovery ahead of you? Um, is that overwhelming? Did, did, did it hit you immediately or, or was it overwhelming period? It hit me. It hit me immediately after I woke up from the coma three weeks later, um, they started waking me up and, um, I didn't at that point know what had happened. I, I had no memory. And did it seem like any time passed at all? You, yeah, you just no, went to sleep and woke it, up? It didn't. You um, didn't realize you were asleep for three weeks. I did not. And when I woke up, I couldn't even, I didn't even remember that I had had a baby just a couple of weeks prior, a few weeks prior. And they had to literally walk me through, you know, you had a heart attack. This is what happened. And then breaking the news that I was on the heart transplant list. Oh, oh my gosh. And getting that, getting that letter. And I was overwhelming to say the least. Yeah. Um, I was devastated. Mm. I I thought, how can I go from perfectly healthy and really in many ways invincible? I was literally, even at 40 years old, I was invincible. And um, how could I go? How could I go from a high to this rock bottom that quickly? And, uh, I couldn't understand it. And, um, so that was extremely difficult. And I had a lot of, um, two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, three steps back. It's a very long process going through heart failure with the LVAD and then going with transplant. Um, but, uh, you have to do it. So you have to do what you have to do. And and you start thinking about your baby and your family and your other daughter. And all of a sudden you tell me about that. And you, because you, you mentioned something like that to me before where you started thinking about others, not yourself at that point. And that's what really turned that switch to where you knew you had to go forward. Yes. Um, at one point, um, while I was in the coma, um, many people don't remember a lot of things that are in comas, and and uh, and I still don't remember most of it. But I had a few times, twice, in fact, I had t- two times where perfect clarity. 
I knew what I had to do. And it gave me the strength to go forward, to go through this process that I didn't realize it was going to take two years to recover. Um, I had this impression that I just had this feeling that I wanted to give up. I knew my body was going through a war zone and I was fighting and I was so, so incredibly tired. And I just didn't know if I wanted this, if I wanted to go through this, if I wanted to fight it was just seemed so overwhelming and so hard at the moment. And I remember having a choice. I could let go. I could just let go. If you did let go at that moment, it would probably be a heck of a lot easier. Easier. And, and really a big time relief, right? Very, very much so. But as soon as that thought entered my head, I thought of my two girls, my brand new baby and my 16-year-old at the time. And I knew, just, I just knew that I had to be there for them. And it was a struggle initially. It, I just didn't want to do it. But I knew I had to be there for those two girls. That's and a, I'm grateful I did choose. Oh, I can only imagine how much your daughters love you and are so happy that you're here. And um, you, you made a conscious effort you know, to just overcome that obstacle. But it wasn't like, I'm going to be... I'm going to be sick for a day and I'll be okay tomorrow. It wasn't like even I'll be sick for a week and I'll be okay. It, this is years. The process, and, yes. And, yeah. So who helped you, um, you know, kind of get through that that tough time? You, support team, um, family members, what sort of things helped you bridge that? I had an incredible support team. Um, I had my family, you know, my my husband and my girls, Um but that was hard too, you know, because they they were having to play caretaker at this point because I was so weak from from the heart attack and from the stroke that you know I had to relearn how to walk, talk, swallow, eat. I couldn't I couldn't even pinch my fingers together, let alone open up a pill bottle. I had to learn how to do that all over again. And so when I came home six weeks after having this heart attack, I was still getting a lot of therapy at home. I was. I was just barely bouncing back. And so I needed a lot of help from my immediate family, from my family, from my husband's family. Um, the community came together. Neighbors. Neighbors, my my church. Um, and then I had my team up at the hospital. You know, they become family to you, really, because they're so involved in your life for the rest of your life. Yeah, you know, I, I hear you refer to them as your team, but they're actually your family. They are. Oh, absolutely. You ask any one of us that have had a transplant up there, they are our family. Because once you go through, once you are in heart failure and go through this and LVAD and you have a transplant, they're your team for the rest of your life. Hmm. And we see them every three months without fail. It's, you know, for all of our follow-up care. And, um, and you end up sharing, you know, experiences with your nurses and doctors. And, um, uh, there are a few good things that came out of this. That's it's just so incredible, you know, that, that you went through that. Um, talk about for us, your heart, the new one, where'd it come from? Who, did you did you know the donor? Did you meet the donor? Tell us about that. Uh, I remember when I got the phone call that they had a new heart for me. It was um, September. No, sorry. I always say September. It was October 9th, 
It was one o'clock in the afternoon. I had just gotten done. So interesting to me that you remember specific dates, times of day, everything of when these things happened to you. Oh, yes. Yes, I do. Um, It was around one o'clock in the afternoon. I'd just gotten done washing my hair and I got the call. And um, what did they say? Dr. Budge, she said, Andrea, she goes, we think we, she goes, we think we have a new heart for you. And the reason they say think is because they were still running tests. Um, but it was looking really good that we were a perfect match. And so, um, they called me and said, uh, and they, they talked to me about my first question out of my mouth was, how was the family? How was the family? Because I knew. How was the family where the heart was coming yes, from? Yes. Because I knew that for me to be getting that, somebody had a great loss. And so she told me, Andrea, don't worry about that. You don't need to worry about that right now. And um, she goes, can you get up here within the next two hours? And I said, yes. She goes, if you can get up here in less than an hour, that would be great. So... We jumped in the car and we, and my husband started notifying people. The principal brought our daughter home so we could get up to the hospital. Um, and it was game on at that point. We got there and, um, there's a lot of prep work that you have that goes into, you know, a heart. Um, and so they started running tests. They started hooking me up. They started giving me anti-rejection medication and everything that, um, goes along with this. Everything is very synchronized, choreographed on both ends. Everything has to line up. Um, as soon as I got to the hospital, I had this incredible impression that I knew that my donor was in that hospital with me. And that doesn't always happen because sometimes, um, Hearts are flown in. The, you know the doctors have to go and you know retrieve the heart, harvest the heart from a different you know from anywhere. And um, but I knew I had this. I just knew that my donor was in that hospital. And when and when they got me all hooked up and my doctors came in, they I said to them, I said, I said, my donor's here, isn't it? Aren't they? And they said we can't we can't say anything. Everything is very confidential. Sure. And I said, I think he's here. And and then and he was. He that was. you found out later. Yes, he was. I found out later from his mother. And it was a he. It was a he. His name was Tyson John Uliberry. And I'm okay saying that because his parents want me for you know, to talk about him, that he did exist. And uh, he was eighteen years old. I remember waking up anyway that night. I went into surgery about 10 o'clock that night and I woke up again. They were finished at about seven or eight the next morning. So it was an all night ordeal. And I remember waking up from that and I felt like I'd been hit by a Mack truck again. Oh my gosh. I just, I thought, I don't feel any better. And I wanted to say that. But the first thing I noticed was that my heart was beating so hard and fast. Really? Yes. And I told him, I said, I said, it's hard to breathe almost because it's beating so fast and so hard. And they said, is that normal? That's normal. That is normal. And because of that, also, I had a young heart. Tyson was 18 when he passed. 
and he was an athlete. And how old were you at this time? I was 40. Okay. Six years ago, this yes. happened. Yes. And, um, I knew when I woke up and felt his heart. I didn't know if it was a boy. Well, they didn't. They can't tell you if it's a boy or a girl. But I knew that it was. I knew that it was male. I just felt it, and I wanted to know his name desperately, which they just can't tell you. Um. But uh, that was the start of my recovery. And uh, the first year is really rough. I remember the team telling me, the first is going to take you a good year to feel 100%, to feel normal again. And I remember looking at them and saying, a year? Yeah. I, no. I'm an active mom. I have a baby. Yes. I have, I, have a, I have a life. I, you know, I'm active. I can't just put my life on hold for a year. I can't. You know, and it, I was so discouraged. And I just thought, you know what? No. I'm going to beat that. I cannot just not do anything. And um, I just had to really um, come to terms with the fact that this is a process. You don't just bounce. It's not like getting a cold or the flu and you're in a couple days, you're good. Um, This was going to take time. And there were going to be a lot of ups and downs in that year. Um, you know, it's not uncommon to be hospitalized the first year, which I was, um, you know, you're put on a lot of heavy anti-rejection drugs that you're on lifelong and, you know, those drugs are very powerful and you're having to get used to those. Um, I remember I was sicker than a dog for the first three months after transplant because those medications, I was vomiting constantly. Uh, because they're just getting used to all that medication. You know, you go from not taking anything to taking, I was on 47 pills a day. Mm. So I was thinking um, about this last year, uh, the year of COVID and our worldwide pandemic. Um, you are still on anti-rejection medication. Yes. Your immune system is at a weak point yes. the rest of your life. You did dodge a bullet by not having all this go on during COVID, but we're you, but now you still now that you're healthier and you've been you've had this heart for a few years. You're you still went through this last year. Was that scary for you? Did, were, you were you frightened that it, it uh, might you know hurt you in a bad way? Um, I had a mix of emotions initially when when we started hearing about it and they shut down the state. Um, my team reacted with uh, letting all letting me know that I needed to, and I was working in my office. They needed to, to let me know that I needed to self quarantine. You know, they didn't know a whole lot about COVID at the time, and being already severely immunosuppressed, they just felt like the safest thing was for me to lay low, to not go out when I don't have to. If I can work from home, work Did from they home. Did they need to come to you then for a little while, or? 
No, we did. We still had to go up to them. We still have to have our appointments because we have to have a lot of testing done every three months. We have to have an echocardiogram. We have Alamaps done. We have a lot of testing that you need to be present for okay. in the hospital. And you just took every precaution. Oh, uh, every. To, yes, yeah. uh, every. And, um, I remember initially being very scared and we did, they, we did have a transplant get COVID and he did pass oh, and, um, we're a little community as transplants yeah, yeah. and, uh, that was very shocking and extremely difficult and it just hit home that we need to lay low. And, uh, and our team was so stressing that I had, my groceries were being delivered to my home. I started working from home. Um, didn't go out anywhere. Um, really, it was discouraging once again. And um, but you know, I thought, oh, this will end. And then, as time went on, I started getting more discouraged because here my my life was literally being put on hold once again. Sure. And being stifled to some degree, and. But then I'm hearing people not wanting to wear masks and that people not wanting to do this. And, and uh, it, was, it was difficult. And really, my light at the end of the tunnel was that vaccine. As soon as that vaccine is available, it's going to be our ticket to freedom you again. Were thinking. Yes. And you got it as soon as possible. Yes. Our team yeah. approved it in mid-February, and um, we've been able to get it. And that is, has been a miracle. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. Give your life back. So how do you cope? How do you cope when, when life turns dark on you and you've had to go through so much struggle, strife, pain, loneliness, depression? How do you cope? How do you get through all that? And what would you tell someone that's facing similar experiences as you went through? This is a little bit hard. Um, I have spoken to patients that are on LVADs that are looking at heart transplants, and my team asks me to come come up to the hospital from time to time and talk to patients that are really struggling with even going down that path, and whether they want an LVAD or not, whether they want the heart transplant or whether they just want to let nature take its course and pass. Um, so they call me in just to talk with them, be honest and frank about my situation and story. And I do that. And most of them are struggling, just like I did. And all I tell them is, hold on. Have strength. Have faith that this will pass. I remember thinking... Life is all about experience, and and that's good and bad. We have good experiences and bad experiences, and I firmly believe that the things that we experience sometimes things happen to us that aren't that aren't our fault or that are the fault of other people, and uh, and sometimes they are our fault. But I really believe that the circumstances that we're dealt and the experiences that we uh, go through, whether good or bad, we have the choice to make that for our good or to, 
I don't want to say struggle, but that's kind of what it is. I think it, I, I think I asked them, I asked patients, you know, when they're in the situation, I said, if you can just get the perspective that this is another experience in your life, it may be the hardest experience in your life, but there must be something that we can gain and learn from it in some way. And we, and we probably don't know why or how at the time, but maybe down the road, we'll be able to look at this experience and go, okay, this is what I gained from it. This is what I learned from it. And, and be able to say, I was supposed to go through that because I needed to learn more compassion or I needed to learn more about patience. Um, that's that's kind of what I tell people. Just have Beautiful. the faith and courage to let this experience kind of hone you. That's That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and just closing, um, would you do this all again? That was asked to me when I was still in the hospital going through this, and I said, no way. But <laughs> Totally get that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, I can look back at it now, and I can say, yes, I would. I wouldn't want to, and I wouldn't want anybody to have to go through what I went through but I would because it's brought me to where I am today. I would not be where I'm at and have the experiences that I've had if those things hadn't happened. I would not be the person that I am today if I had not gone through that. And I feel like I'm, an, I'm a better person because I chose to make it, I chose to turn it into something positive in my life. And so as much as I would not want to do it again, I would. Fantastic. Well, you're tough. You're a warrior, and <laughs> and um, just so much character has been built into you um, from from this experience. And so, thank you for sharing this story with us. And um, I'm sure that a lot of the listeners are, are going to be able to relate. Some will never even imagine what you've gone through, and um, will not know how to even cope with something like this. And hearing your bravery. And your ability to work through this and gain something positive from it. Um, you have a whole life ahead of you. Oh, yes. And, and uh, I know that you'll accomplish great things you already have. You've been a great mentor and leader to to all of us that uh, haven't gone through an experience like you. And you're giving us hope So and, and love. And right. that's what the world needs big time right now. Yeah. So last, last parting words. Anything else you'd like to tell us before we close? Just that um, when life gets hard, when, when we have to endure things that are extremely unpleasant, things that are hurting us, um, just to have the courage, the courage and the faith that this too will pass. You may go through hell before you get there, but you can do it. It's not going to be easy, but it is so possible. And to not give up because it is possible to to be to be normal or whole again after this experience and to even be better for it. Hey, thanks everybody out there for tuning in on another episode of A Close Call with Death and this one with Andrea Duncan. We're grateful that Andrea spent this time with us and appreciate you joining us on this episode. If you have A Close Call with Death, email us at bob at a close call with death.com. We could share your story or even have you on as a guest. Take care. And until you hear from us again, stay alive to tell about it.